Welcome to Bread and Milk. I'm Naomi Devlin and I'll be taking you on a soothing ramble through the food memories of some of my favourite people. This week's guest is Alana Taylor-Tobin, better known as the Beaujon Gourmet. And she has a, uh, a blog, which she's done for many years, which is absolutely full. It's a packed resource of all sorts of recipes. So if you're gluten-free or paleo, because she's recently been experimenting with paleo, she's following um, a grain-free diet herself, uh, then you will find lots and lots of, not just the pastry recipes, the patisserie that she's so famous for, but lots of savoury and even some drinks on there. Uh, she's written uh, an amazing book called Alternative Baker which is uh, essentially it's treats but wow the treats they're really full of flavour and she creates her own her own flavour blends which anyone who knows me knows I'm a massive fan of. I think that uh, gluten-free flours, the inherently gluten-free ones, not the pre-mixed bagged ones that you can buy, are are the way really to experiment and enjoy being gluten-free and that's exactly what she does. Her work is filled with light and colour and really feels kind of very generous and exciting. It makes you want to get in the kitchen and start cooking. And I didn't know Alana before we uh, chatted, although obviously I'd followed her work. And really, she's the sort of person that as soon as you start chatting to her, you feel you've known her forever. She has a beautiful, soft voice that I could listen to all day. I'll put links to her blog and Instagram and her book in the show notes. And uh, I just need to make a note about the sound quality today. Um, there was some rustling going on uh, and a little bit of background noise, but I know you'll forgive me. It's recorded virtually across the world. Alana lives in San Francisco and really it's incredible to me that, that it's possible to talk to people on the other side of the world. It's kind of magic. And uh, so yeah, please forgive us. Hopefully what we have to say is interesting enough to get over the little rustles. Um, so I grew up in this little hippie town in Southern California called Topanga Canyon. Um, my parents were like hippies in the like late 60s. And um, so this was a very um, fitting place for them to end up. And it's this really rural little pocket in Los Angeles County. Um, it's very like wild and it has, it's got that kind of scrubby, like, you know, dry Southern California vibe to it. Um, and uh, I just have like a real foodie family. Like my dad is just he was a foodie before that was a term, um, okay. but he just, he let like, he loves cooking and he loves food. He loves reading about food. Both my parents, like my mom, you know, would get a subscription to Bon Appetit and my parents um, were divorced when I was six. Um, but still like they both love food, you know, in their own ways. Um, and so I would like sometimes on the weekends, my, when I was with my dad, he'd be like, let's make pasta from scratch. And he had like a, one of those old fashioned pasta makers, you know, where you clamp it to the table and then you like turn the crank and mm. you can make, put different kind of dyes in to make like different cuts of pasta. Uh, or sometimes we would make pizza from scratch. Um, and then his mom, 
who we called Bubba was like a really passionate baker. And I think that was kind of, she wasn't like a warm fuzzy person at all, but um, I think that baking was kind of her way of like showing her love. So she would mm -hmm. make us these, you know, lots of different types of cookies, like rogula, I really remember, and lots of different other cookies. And she would, uh, and she would make us, um, like she just loved food and cooking. Mm. So I, I feel like I kind of, like none of my family worked in food, but we were just all, you know, enjoyed food and liked cooking and mm. were interested in how things were made and had, my parents had lots of cookbooks um, and would get food magazines. And so I kind of just grew up enjoying cooking. Um, and when I was a teenager, Oh, and then actually my uh, half brother on my dad's side is uh, quite a bit older than I am. And he had a girlfriend who was a pastry chef. And mm. I, I think I was like seven or eight when I met her because um, my brother lived up here in um, San Francisco. And when I found out that there was a thing called a pastry chef, I was like, you get paid to make desserts for a living? I was like, <laughs> Oh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> it just yeah, like... who wouldn't want that job? <laughs> so people, you know, when you're a little kid and people ask you, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" and I would say, "I want to be a pastry chef." <laughs> like back then, like there just there wasn't quite the like glamorization of food culture that we have now. So people just thought I was so weird. They're like, "Who is this kid?" Like when everyone else wanted to like be the president or be like an actor, actress, because it was in Southern California. Yes, yes, <laughs> or an like, astronaut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I want to be a pastry chef. I would experiment with baking on, you know, like on uh, after school or on the weekends. Uh, I loved looking through my mom's Bon Appetits and sometimes I'd be like, I'm going to make souffle. <laughs> I would just <laughs> make a recipe. And I, I enjoyed the process of following recipes and um, like we had the joy of cooking. And so I remember trying, I was like, I'm going to make coco van tonight or like, nice. you know, trying like different cookie and cake recipes from the book. And um, so all throughout high school, I just would sort of bake in my free time and I wanted to go right into food, but I had an English teacher who said, this is going to make me sound like a snob just for repeating what he said. He said, it would be a waste of my intellect if I went to cooking school and didn't go to college. I think you should get that on the t-shirt. <laughs> I was, um, I was eating gluten at that time and I was in like a sourdough phase and um, I, I was trying to find uh, ways to use up the discard starter. I wanted to make um, sourdough crackers and I found some recipes online, but they just weren't any good. The, I remember the recipes all had baking soda in them. And so the baking soda would like counteract the, sour, the sourdough tang it just like took that away and then it would get this like really brittle texture that just like wasn't good so mm -hmm. i found just like a regular cracker recipe where you like cut the butter in and then i think you added what like a little bit of water to it to bring it together or cream or something like that and so i just tried like adding the sourdough starter to it and um like the crackers were really good and i made them all the time and i would like share them with people mm -hmm. and I was like, I want to share this recipe with the world because the sourdough cracker recipes that I found on the internet were terrible. Mm -hmm. And my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband said, oh, you should start a blog. 
And I'm not a computery person at all, but I just like went on to blogspot.com and I had a blog in like five minutes, you know, and I like put the recipe up. I took some pictures on like our little point and shoot camera. Um, and so I was like, well, that was fun. Like I'll probably never do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just like got really into it. I've always loved sharing recipes with other people. And like, I liked that the like aspect, like when I read cookbooks, I, my favorite part is like the little blurb before the recipe where like the person tells you like the history of the recipe or like their experience with it or how they, um, you know, tested the recipe and came up with like this weird, you know, one weird trick that like makes the recipe work. So I love that blogs, it was just like that, but like expanded. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really- it is a really like a direct experience thing, isn't it? It's like you're which you don't get in a book actually it's always a little bit unsatisfying that little blurb and as you know as a recipe book writer you're always they're always like no you have to make that bit smaller and you're like no no but I have a story to tell about this you know and that is where the blog comes in isn't it it's it's you can be expansive as you like oh and I called it the Bojan gourmet (laughs) so Bojan Bojan is no job backwards and it was just this like kind of inside joke between me and my boyfriend or who's now my husband, um, he had this coworker who he's, he works in tech. He's a computer programmer. And so like in the, um, was it like late nineties when there was like the big crash of um, tech, like the whole tech industry kind of crashed and like everyone was unemployed. Like all of these programmers who had had these like really high paying jobs, that's all these startups were getting like so much funding and then suddenly everybody was unemployed. And so um, my husband's former coworker started this website, bojan.com. And it's like trying to put a positive spin on being unemployed or like being fun employed, you know? So he has this whole, like the Tao of Bojan is like the opposite of having like a soul sucking job that you hate and takes up all your time. And it's like, Bojan is more like when you have a day off or you're on vacation and you get to just do your thing and have fun. Came across Bojan Gourmet. I was like, Bojan, God, that sounds like maybe that's like a French speaking part of America. You know, maybe it's like in the deep south, the Bojan. That sounds really French. And uh... it sounds kind of Cajun or something. <laughs> yeah, it does sound Cajun. I was like, oh, maybe she is from there, you know. And I looked at, I couldn't find any kind of, you know, reference to it. So it was, and it was quite a while later that I found out that's what, because I don't think you were explicit on the blog I wanted to keep it as like a little inside joke (laughs) like if you know you know (laughs) but then I was like oh this is terrible for SEO like no one knows how to spell this (laughs) nobody knows what it means it's like the worst (laughs) blog name So when we spoke uh, originally, uh, and uh, like I said, I didn't know much about your childhood. I didn't know really where you come from, apart from thinking maybe you were from South Carolina. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) who knows? Uh, And um, and one of the things you said that was it that your baba used to make was cheese blintzes. Yes, that was one of the her specialties that I really remember vividly, along with the brugola which I 100% want you to tell me about, but I'll just tell you the first time I uh, heard about cheese blintzes was, so I grew up in a commune 
and we had a huge kind of stack of recipe books that I would go to and I worked my way through and because we had to um, cook for the whole commune and we were on a rotor and because I was home educated I was also on the rotor cooking away and that's how I learned to cook was by cooking for all these people that were coming to the commune and uh, and so we pull pull the you know veg out the ground and do the all the cooking and and I was always kind of looking in recipe books to, I mean, partially to learn how to cook because my mum didn't know how to cook at all. So I had no education about that from my childhood. And then, so we moved to this place when I was 11. And so I started when I was 11. And we had this book called uh, The Enchanted Broccoli Forest by Molly Katzen. Do you know it? Did your parents oh, yes. have it? My parents had it, yes. And yes. I still have a copy of it. Okay. I so, <laughs> and I actually and, have a friend who worked at the Moosewood restaurant. In, uh, no in way. We meet every morning now and we like do exercises together over the internet. <laughs> How <laughs> amazing. So there, So yeah, so she she had the Moosewood restaurant and then so there was the Moosewood cookbook and then the Enchanted Broccoli Forest. And it was all hand-drawn and the recipes were all handwritten out. And I used to look through it and there were all these kind of things um, that were, and I guess it's a Jewish tradition as well, isn't it? She comes from. And so one of the things was cheese blintzes. And I used to look at it in the description. And I think she had like a, uh, maybe like a ricotta filling with blueberries, which I'd never come across. Blueberries? <laughs> what are they? And the, the ricotta filling had like, you know, beaten egg whites. And I think there were beaten egg whites in the actual blintzes themselves. And I remember having such a, a vivid image of how kind of light and fluffy and luscious and with these mystical blueberries in them, which I'd never, <laughs> you know, and I, but I never made them because somehow they were, they were, they were kind of mythical. I didn't know what, when would you eat a blintz, you know, and, and how would I get hold of ricotta and blueberries? And, you know, so they remained and have always remained a kind of mythical thing. I've never eaten. So I want you to describe what is a blintz and tell me about about the blintz that your, <laughs> your baba made. This is so amazing. And I can't believe I've never tried the recipe from the Moosewood Cookbook. It's so funny. Um, so, yes, so it's uh, so blintzes are it's kind of similar to a crepe. I think it's a little bit more eggy than a crepe batter and you just cook them on one side and then you sort of roll them up into a little burrito-ish kind of parcel and sometimes the filling is like a sweet cheese one. Uh, farmer cheese is the traditional cheese to use but um, ricotta and cottage cheese are more um, sort of common in the U.S. at least. Mm. And that's so funny that you didn't have blueberries in the U.K. I didn't even know that. <laughs> they're not. I guess they're not native. Yeah, well, no, I think they have them in Scotland, but they don't really grow. I mean, maybe they do grow now, but certainly back in the 80s, they didn't. I'd never come across them. I mean, some people had never come across bananas in the 80s. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> avocados. So, you know, there were a lot of things that we hadn't been exposed That's to. That's so then. wild. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Probably uh, and so, we had like black currants. You know, we had black currants and plums and raspberries and, and strawberries, but yeah, gooseberries, but no, no blueberries. Yeah. Um, anyway, but blueberries are a common filling uh, in blintzes. So, like, you either have cheese blintzes, or the only ones that I've ever seen or heard of are either the sweet cheese ones, or there's kind of like a thick blueberry compote that goes uh, in, you know, folded within the crepe. 
And so once you've made the blintz, then you fry it again in butter. <laughs> That's where it gets really good because it gets like a little crispy on the outside, but then it's like filled with this like, I, you know, I'm partial to the cheese ones. Um, so it's like filled with this, you know, kind of cheesecake flavored filling, but it's not very sweet. And then traditionally, at least this is how we would eat them. We would serve them with uh, sour cream and applesauce. And I think my uh, Baba used to make uh, like a big batch of cheese blintzes to give us and we would just keep them in the freezer and then we could just reheat them. Like my mom would cook them up in a skillet for me. And I remember eating them at night, not for breakfast, but maybe more as like a dessert kind of thing, like mm. after dinner. Like um, a treat. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah, it's so the delicious. it's the being fried. I mean, anything fried in butter. Come on, <laughs> it's going <laughs> to yeah. be improved. But yeah, there's something about a pancake being filled with something soft and then fried in butter. And I always remember that imagining the kind of softness with the crispness and and that kind of caramelization that you get from butter. Any kind of anything fried in butter. Oh yeah sounds amazing and and also there's a kind of link with the cream that cream cheese filling that like a new york cheesecake or a, you know they're things that we didn't back in the 80s we really didn't have any of those the closest thing we would get to a, a, a kind of new york cheesecake would be uh something that was set with gelatin so it would be like cream cheese but set with gelatin and you know it might have a kind of jelly layer on top but a baked cheesecake or something baked in a you know fried in a, it has a completely different quality doesn't it that kind of tender melting quality Totally, yeah, thick and luscious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, I totally, I'm just going to have to make them. I mean, so if you made them now, what would you, what would you make up your batter from? So I actually have a recipe in my cookbook and I have a similar one. I actually have two on my blog on the Beaujon Gourmet. And so one of them, the one in my book and the one, and one of the ones on my site, I used buckwheat and sweet rice flour as the flowers and it worked really well. Mm. Uh, the sweet rice flour is, as you know, like really sticky. And so it helps hold things together. And then the buckwheat flour also is high in protein. And I just love the flavor of buckwheat. Mm. And I thought it would be nice with the sweet cheese. Mm. And um, I like to, now I like to eat them with berries. So uh, either like macerated strawberries or the one in my book, I actually got some huckleberries, which I wonder if you guys have huckleberries over in the UK. Tell me, what are they? They're uh, a little berry that they're apparently very hard to cultivate. So they're usually found wild and it's kind of like a tiny blueberry. They're really small. They're, mm. I don't know, I don't know how big this is, like a quarter inch maybe. So they're yeah. tiny and they grow uh, like in California, like Northern California in kind of cooler climates, like under the trees in the forest. And they have like a very woodsy flavor to me, but it's kind of like a blueberry. But if you just condensed all that flavor in, down into like a tiny, tiny little berry. Yeah, yeah. Maybe so like a like... bilberry. So we have yes. bilberries. Yes. In fact, I think they might be the same thing, like different names for the same thing. Okay, which is essentially, I think, just a wild blueberry, isn't it? Like the equivalent of a wild strawberry to a strawberry, you know, which is just like big and watery. And then the wild strawberry is like essence of strawberry in a kind of little package. Mm, those are so good. Like yeah. The <laughs> <Des Bois. laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, so I did okay. put, I put 
huckleberries and the ones in my cookbook. And mm. then I also have a recipe on my blog with chestnut flour. And, the, and then those ones I served with a cranberry apple compote. And so the Ooh. chestnut flour adds, I use that Italian chestnut flour, which is like a slightly smoky and mm. kind of sweet. And then the texture of that one, I remember, was really nice, kind of like dump, dumpling-ish, kind of yeah. like chewy. and. Um, well, chestnut has that unique, it's got kind of melting and starchy at the same time, isn't it? You know, it's heavy and starchy and it seems completely, I don't think it's, there's an analogue for chestnut at all. And the flavour oh, yeah. can vary from, like I've had chestnut flour that tastes like kind of bacon bits, you know, it's got a kind of like bacony really smokiness smoky. to it. Yeah. yeah. And then all the way to just very soft and nutty and sweet, you know, and you think you never quite know which you're going to get. But I guess, yes, the Italian Italian one does tend to be smokier I wonder if that's how I they dry they, them yes exactly that's what I read at least that they dry them over or they're smoked they're dried over coals or something like that okay. which gives them the smoky flavor yes but oh, then so I have found some chestnut flour in that's like in milled in the U.S. that's not smoked oh. and then that tends to be that more sweet sweet and kind of creamy mm. tasting soft and starchy it's all good but it's interesting isn't it because some of those flowers are stronger flavored people don't go for because they're like oh I don't I want something neutral I don't want something so strong flavored and I think that's one of the things that I really loved about your book when I found it is that you were celebrating the flavors that were in there you know and I know you have your kind of favorite blends you know maybe like oat sorghum and sweet rice I think I've, I've seen you use a lot um, which is maybe more neutral, but but that you're actually thinking about the flavour of the flowers and what they might go with, rather than thinking about the flower itself as being a very neutral kind of background, which is the wonder mm -hmm. of gluten-free, isn't it? You know, that we have that option. Right, yes, exactly. But then we, you still get to uh, experience all of these, like, incredible different varied flavors and colors and textures of all of these different flowers and mm -hmm. like you uh I was pretty uninspired by all of those like all-purpose gluten-free blends and I was like but the half the fun is that you get to like use different flowers every time and have it not taste the same and have it not yeah. be this like boring bland like canvas but instead thinking of it as like almost like a spice like the buckwheat flour is like a spice where it's adding its own flavor profile to it or chestnut or corn flour or teff flour. Yeah, yeah, the real, the heavy hitters. So when you grew up, you said your parents were hippies and they were foodies. Were they making hippie food? Like the kind of food that I would grow up with, you know, the kind of lentil stews and and the kind of, you know, things that were very uh, rustic, maybe, or, you know, or, or did that not extend to their food? You said you had pasta and pizza, you know, which sounds quite traditional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Strangely, they didn't really make hippie food that I can remember. My mom is kind of a health nut in terms of like, whole, like I would, you know, I, I would have to have like whole wheat bread. Like my lunch would be like whole wheat bread with like turkey and mayo. And then I had this friend who like, when we went to her house, her parents would make like wonder bread, like Skippy, 
peanut butter and jelly, like strawberry, super sweet, like strawberry jam and like Wonder Bread. And this was like my favorite treat. I had another friend who we'd get to have like craft macaroni and cheese from a box. It was like fluorescent orange. <laughs> that was my favorite thing Heaven. ever. <laughs> Heaven. So my mom was like into health. My dad was, my dad's more of like an adventurous eater and he likes going to like nice restaurants. So actually my favorite, my other favorite food that wasn't like junk food when I was a kid was um, sushi. My dad would sometimes take me to sushi restaurants and he'd be like, we're going to sit at the sushi bar and you just order like, you know, you order a thing and then they make it for you and you eat it and then you order another thing. And it was just like this whole fun experience. And we would get he was, he, we would get like shrimp nigiri and then he would have them like all they would, I guess it was kind of a delicacy to like fry the shrimp heads and then you would eat the shrimp heads and they get like crispy and I've never had one like since I was a kid, but you'd eat the whole thing. So you would eat the shell as well, or you would suck the brains out. <laughs> I guess it was just the head and it was deep fried and you could eat the whole thing. Like, I don't think, I don't remember there being was there a shell? Maybe it was a shell because I remember it being like these things that would come out, but I don't, I actually have no idea like what part of the shrimp that was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that has to be the I shell because, yeah, because a shrimp inside is just like a little, you know, maggot, <laughs> isn't it? It's obviously not like a maggot that doesn't really sell it, but it's just like a little meaty body. Uh, once you right, take right, right. the actual shrimp out, it doesn't have any kind of That's head on it its head is like all, all the shell and with its funny eyes and then its little legs and then and that's all the um, they're very cute yeah yeah but yes they are cute but yeah that's funny isn't it putting a whole head in your mouth is quite visceral <laughs> yeah so, I, so my, remember my son went through a phase of when we whenever we'd have fish he'd insist that I cooked it whole so he could poke its eyes out <laughs> I was just like, wow, gosh, this is, is this, should I be worried about this or should I encourage it because he's like really embracing where the fish has come from or, or is he a psychopath? It turns out that he is a foodie. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> what a relief. Yeah, I, um, about a year ago, so my mom has found again because my mom's like really into health so she's it really experimented with her diet throughout the years and my mom would rather be a vegetarian if she could but she has figured out she did like the raw foods diet for a while where she ate only raw food for like done eight that. months and she you've done that oh, oh yeah. my goodness back in the 80s How did you so. find it? oh my oh. gosh really I didn't yeah know. oh yeah 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 when it was first like I mean I was a teenager you know but um but yes wow. I did it I, I I think I just put everything mayonnaise on everything <laughs> and I remember people saying to me at the time you shouldn't really be putting mayonnaise on that and I was like I still have to enjoy my food <laughs> so yeah I just ate lots of crudités with mayonnaise on them <laughs> oh my god <laughs> my first year of college and I went home for, you know, the holidays and my mom had gotten into raw food and was eating hundred percent raw. And so she picked me up from the airport and took me to a garage where this chef Giuliano was having like the serving this raw meal out of his garage. And it was like the weirdest things like 
seaweed soup. I just remember everything being kind of cold and slimy, and like I felt so hungry afterwards. Like I did not feel satisfied. And I sat next to this woman who was 100% raw, and she said that she was living in Colorado, which it gets very cold there in the winter. And she's like, it was a really hard winter. And she wouldn't even drink hot tea. Like she wouldn't even heat up her water. And I was like, what are these people doing? Like, I don't, this does not seem healthy. Well, especially when you think about things like Ayurveda, which would say that in the winter, especially if it is cold, like if you're in Northern California, there's no way that you should be eating 100% raw anyway because you're chilling your body and it makes sense doesn't it we crave soup and cooked food and hot tea and hot chocolate in the in the winter because that is actually what our bodies need uh, and and then in the summer yeah we want salad and smoothies and and you know and if to go against that just seems insane right completely i completely agree yeah i was kind of happy when the raw food scene seemed to die down <laughs> at least in california at least in northern california yeah. um although i will say this restaurant cafe gratitude was like the raw restaurant and they have the best desserts and i still remember i wish they had they closed several years ago but like oh my god they have the best desserts with like um blended cashews and like nut like um the nut pulp like leftover from making nut milk they'd make these cakes with the nut pulp and like mm. oh my god the desserts there were just incredible because you can't go wrong with nuts really can you you know it's like and and actually uh, all those raw desserts you do think i mean great i think it's such an amazing craft but it's the it, it in terms of the raw food diet it's the it's the tiniest little kind of it, it almost doesn't count <laughs> you know it's like just eat a raw food dessert because it's a delicious thing rather than saying I eat this because it's good for me or I don't know because it's not dead not yeah dead. exactly because it's never <laughs> seen heat which is terrible <laughs> god god forbid you should roast a nut So my mom did like the raw food diet and she said she felt great, but it was just like too hard to keep that up. And then, she, but she, I think through that process, she kind of realized that she does better on like a paleo-ish diet. And for a while, my mom was vegan and she was getting really sick, like just colds and flus. And she'd be sick for like crazy long time. Like she'd have a flu for like a month. Like it was just absolutely like there was something wrong. And I remember talking to her and saying, like, is there anything you're craving, like chicken soup or, you know, anything? And she was like, I'm really craving raw red meat. Mm. And so I was like, you should eat some red meat. And she said she ate like a, she got a steak and ate it and she like immediately felt better. And so she just realized that like for her body or constitution or whatever, she needs to avoid grains and dairy and beans and eat like fruits and vegetables and like a little bit of meat fish and poultry mm. so I thought my mom was just she's you know I think of my mom as being like pretty out there and pretty like radical and maybe sometimes believing sort of pseudosciencey things that don't seem legit um but like this past year I started getting sick frequently and like would have and I was vegetarian and mm. for like five years and um so I started like getting these really bad colds that would last way too long. Like I was sick for like three months. Like I just mm. couldn't get better. And I was like resting. I was having miso soup all the time. And like, 
drinking lots of like tea and like ginger and garlic and like all the things that they tell you to do and staying hydrated and resting. Like I was doing all the right things, but I just was not getting better. So I started working with a nutritionist and she recommended a paleo-ish diet. And I was like, oh, that's what my mom, like, this is basically exactly what was happening to my mom. And like, where, you know, I'm like half of her DNA at least. Mm. So it would make sense that I would have the same sensitivities. So I've just been kind of experimenting with like eating some meat, fish and poultry and like avoiding grains and dairy. And um, it's been really interesting, just a weird year, like doing this in lockdown. I think it, I mean, it was easier to do it in lockdown because I'm not like going out to eat with people and having to like make those choices all the time or like explain it to people all the time. Yeah. Um, but it's just added to how surreal this year has been. <laughs> <laughs> the year of no grains and yes. no social contact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like right when everyone was like making all the sourdough and like making banana bread and like get yeah. like freaking out that there wasn't like you know people couldn't get flour and stuff and I was like I can't have any of that like I have to figure out how to use cassava flour and like almond flour and yeah. so you I mean obviously you can make uh I mean I'm sure you've made some amazing banana breads oh bananas off your menu no, bananas are fine. Bananas are thankfully. okay. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you, you could, cause you can have tiger nut, all nut flowers, cassava, um, or else, but you don't have the pseudo grains. So you don't have quinoa and, and buckwheat and amaranth. I need to try reintroducing those and see what happens, but um, I have been avoiding them for now. I've done that diet myself just so you know yeah yeah I, I, and I find it very I found it incredibly healing because when I went gluten-free my gut was so damaged that I just uh it did, didn't fix me and you know my symptoms were um low thyroid particularly I mean with all the gut symptoms we we won't go into them but but particularly that's how I knew that I wasn't improving because my thyroid uh, levels weren't coming up and so I did the the paleo diet you know this is back in in uh, well like nearly 20 years ago and um and I found it brilliant you know and actually but there was there was very little information so it was those banana pancakes that you make with almond flour and you know and the kind of banana bread that you make with almond flour and, and after a while I was like hang on I'm eating too much almond flour now, you know, everything, oh, the bread I'm eating is almond flour bread, you know, I'd make it like with the carrot pulp that I make from the juice, you know, the carrot pulp and then the, the almond flour and actually, and all these eggs. And it's really interesting that when you cut one thing out, you're a bit like you were saying, you know, with, with people kind of going for the raw food diet, you know, you, you're just desperate for something that isn't raw food because your body wants balance but you're always desperate to replace that thing, which is bread for a lot of people, isn't it? It's like, how do I have bread? And so making bread out of nuts actually isn't that great because you're eating so many nuts, it's so concentrated and actually you just need to not have bread and, and eat more veg. Do you feel better? Do you feel like it's helped? It's definitely helped some things like I used to get brain fog a lot more frequently than I do now and like I hardly ever get it now mm -hmm. so that's been great and then my mom's whole thing is that like when she eats grains or dairy she'll get like gunk in her throat and like have to clear her throat a lot and 
like I always had that, but I just thought that's the way that my body was. And like, then when I cut out all of that stuff, then I became very aware of like when I eat something that like gives me that reaction. And it's like that reaction in itself isn't necessarily like the worst thing ever, but just that it's a sign of like either your immune system is working or like there's that gunk like elsewhere in your body or just like general inflammation or something. So Mm. I just, I kind of got the sense that my immune system was shot from like working really hard. Like I was diagnosed with leaky gut. And so this is all just meant to be like a gut healing protocol Mm. that I'm doing with Allison from Food by Mars, who's really amazing um, nutritionist and just lovely person too. That's fantastic. Yes. So important, isn't it? To have someone like that, who's kind of guiding you because otherwise, I mean, certainly I'm a nutritionist. I don't practice anymore, but uh, that's, um, I just teach now. (laughs) It's much better. I don't have to be responsible for anyone, but, um, but actually uh, people get lost, you know, and you, you, especially when you're experimenting, you're trying this, you're trying that, and then you don't know what's having what effect and having someone who has that overview is just so important, isn't it? And they're like, hang on, you do this and do that for a month and then we'll come back and we'll look at it and yeah this is a sign of that and they're looking at you from the outside and tying all your different symptoms together and it's such a useful thing to have as someone you know with that kind of view from outside Uh, and a lot of people think oh I've got a bit of reflux I'll just take some antacids or whatever it is but and and downplay the fact that their body is giving them a really nice sign that something's out of balance that they could just pay attention to and do something differently and and the quality uh, you know that how much it affects your life is when you when that symptom is no longer there and then all the other things that you didn't realize were associated with it resolve I just think it's yeah it's but you don't know if you're living with it you just assume that's the way you just think that's normal or I'm just getting older and like yeah yeah. Yeah, like oh that's why my joints hurt right (laughs) like uh when I first started getting reflux in my early 20s which I think is like pretty young to have that happen which again was a sign of having gut issues Mm -hmm. I like went to just a regular doctor and I told her I was having that and then she was like oh like eating certain foods can cause that like chocolate nuts and coffee and mint and I was like and I'm not giving those and citrus too I was yeah. like I'm not gonna stop eating those things but it was like what a silly thing to say and not like oh this is a sign of like having these other issues like this, this is my problem with western medicine a yeah. lot that it's just like oh let's just fix the symptom but like never address the root cause yeah, and then end up with yeah. like well I mean in a way that's that's um quite amazing that that they knew to tell you chocolate coffee citrus because a lot of people don't even realize that and so they just start taking the proton pump inhibitors and uh, you know they're like you have too much acid in your stomach when the issue is actually you know you have inflammation lowered down you have leakiness in your uh, esophageal sphincter and and there's all these other things happening either side of your stomach but you take the medicine that stops the acid and then that takes the symptom away and it doesn't and then it leads to some something else worse lower down it's such yeah western medicine sucks at that sort of thing chronic yes illness it sucks at emergency medicine thank god thank god for it like surgery <laughs> and 
vaccines and yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> all of that will take it but the yes. chronic stuff will no thank you we will just look at our diet yes. <laughs> we will do more yoga we'll go yes. running <laughs> you know? actually that's another thing that you do I know we're completely off food memories now but it's something that I really love to see in your social media one is your cats and the other is your hikes uh, <laughs> So, um, so because you really often get out, don't you? Uh, in fact, you could combine the two. Have you ever thought of taking the cats out in little, um, you know, have you seen people who do that? They take their cats out in little bags. I'm just like, there's no way Scarlett would go for that. <laughs> she barely leaves the house. <laughs> we talk about that every single time we go hiking. We're like, what would the cats think of it here? Like, could oh. we put them in a backpack? <laughs> We've tried to just like train them to be on a harness with a leash and like they just do not go for it they're just like they like get paralyzed when you oh, put the harness on it's okay. like they don't know how to walk yeah. <laughs> and- <laughs> yes they go really low to the ground don't they they're like ah. <laughs> uh, but we love hiking we try to get out once a week out uh, we live in the city we live in a kind of you know smallish apartment like big by city standards but like small to live in um mm. full-time and there's no outdoor space in our apartment so um we would try to go hiking like almost every weekend before the pandemic started and then when the pandemic started <laughs> we were like oh we absolutely need to do this once a week for our mental health but yeah. of course like we love the food aspect of hiking and so we pack like breakfast either it'll be like an overnight i've been making this grain-free porridge from allison's website food by mars or i'll make some like um, paleo bread and mm. put some like vegan cream cheese and lox and avocado on it and that will that will be our breakfast and we will make a thermos of like um that stuff tichino it's kind of like a it's like a chicory uh, dandelion coffee substitute mm. but it just tastes really good on its own and then we'll make like a um, fish like a tuna salad or sometimes we'll use like tinned mackerel or something instead of tuna and then cassava crackers and like that's our lunch and mm. we bring like fruit and stuff for cookies for snacks so we just have like a series of picnics when we go out hiking that's exactly <laughs> what it is it's like beautiful scenery you know like great big pine trees and you know big, big vistas and then the snacks that's so for anyone who who doesn't know Alana through her work already that's definitely vicarious living isn't it you know that is that if you can't go to California and go go into the woods you know that's a great way to do it that's mm. nice to hear <laughs> mm. no it's really lovely and also your beautiful cats because you had uh, a cat a lovely ginger cat obviously I have a soft spot for ginger cats called Catamus who sadly passed away and I thought it was interesting quite quickly you got some other cats um it, was, it didn't wasn't... feel quick it felt like an eternity <laughs> yes because <laughs> being catless if you're yeah if you're a cat owner but it's I um I went five years between my previous cat and Scarlet because I had to because of where we were living and we couldn't own cats and and it felt like an eternity and actually that idea that you cut that you um have to kind of wait before you love another cat is I think it's not true is it you know it's like that catamus 
still loved and still there but then you have this new relationship with these other cats and actually it kind of soothes the part of you that needs to have that that relationship with a cat completely yeah non-cat owners won't understand (laughs) (laughs) yeah I just yeah it's so it's um there's something really special and unique about having living with cats not just not just like having a friend who has cats that you can go visit but like just a very like intimate relationship where they're like part of the landscape of your home kind of and it just felt it was so surreal when we lost Cadmus. I mean mm-hmm. I've never cried so much in my life and um my husband too like we would just be sobbing in each other's arms and it was just mm-hmm. like there was just nothing that could be done about that grief we were lucky enough to get these other two cats. We got Zeppo is the black and white tuxedo cat. And we got him in um, early July from a foster agency here in the city. And then the woman who had adopted him to us a few weeks later, we, I knew that we wanted to get two cats because Catamus would get so lonely when we would leave and we'd come Mm. back and he'd be like yowling at the door and like hiding under the bed. (laughs) Like when we were there, he like, he acted like he couldn't care less if we were there or not, but then he got so lonely when we would go away. Uh, so we got Zeppo because we were told that he was good with other cats. And then um, a few weeks later, they said, oh, we have this cat that we think would be a good fit and named Hank. And um, so we adopted Hank and Hank is just like a, the biggest love. Like he's just totally snuggly and he and Zeppo like groom each other and sleep in each other's arms <laughs> they're just like the sweetest cats you would imagine that they're brothers looking at them I can't I, they look, I hadn't realized that they weren't related yeah it's amazing they look really they it's like Hank is a ginger tuxedo but like their white patterning on them is like almost identical it's pretty yeah. amazing. oh that's nice but just the way they are with each other you know that kind of snuggling together that's the dream isn't it yeah that they they have they have each other but they also have you you know yeah, yeah. oh that's really well. sweet so we got those the silver lining to that horrible instance of losing yeah. our dear cat yeah 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 well it's grief is it's never easy is it you've just got to go through it and I think it's gonna just you think you're just gonna die from the grief but like somehow you don't and somehow it just sort of lessens over slowly over time when I lost my cat before Scarlet uh, I'd had um, I'd had him since I was at university and uh, and he so uh, and I loved him so much and uh, and I nursed him he had cancer you know very similar nursed him and then we had to have him put down and the next day I went into school and I was standing in the schoolyard talking to other mothers and um, I was I was saying I didn't know what to do with him, where to put him, you know, to have him cremated or to bury him. And she said, (laughs) you could make a hat out of him. And I was so shocked. Like she'd said, I'd said my grandma's died. And she said, why don't you make a hat out of her? And I was just, I just burst into tears and I was sobbing and and she was mortified. But it was just the idea that someone wouldn't see that that grief is as real as losing a family member. Uh, To me, it was just like, don't make light of it. This is as real to me as anything else will will ever be, you know. Yeah, so I'm not friends with her anymore. (laughs) 
<laughs> I cross the street when I see her. No, oh no, God. I don't. I don't. That's not true at all. <laughs> no, we got over it, luckily. Oh. Yeah, I had a, a cat soulmate when I was a kid. He was, we had his mom and then my parents let the cat get pregnant and have a litter of kittens. And so I actually saw him being born. And so like the, um, he was also a tabby and also they had some Maine Coon in them. Like he had the like fur tufts and he had yes. like his long hair and he had, he was such a handsome cat. And I named the cat, I named the mom cat Tiger when I was like five and then the little tiger was like my cat soulmate who was like the other tabby and then the rest of the litter were like tuxedos or there was like a gray one and there was a black kitten and then we had i called him tiggy until he was like in his early 20s like he lived a really long life wow. he was just like my cat soulmate like he was so like my best friend he was like my sibling and yeah, he was just a really special guy to me. So we have his picture on the refrigerator and I think about him all the time. I have so enjoyed talking to you and it's really, it's been far too long. Uh, and it's one of the things that actually I'm really enjoying about making this podcast series, but also about uh, this time of being locked away is that I feel like people are reaching out to each other more and that we are kind of being braver and enriching our lives with people that we wouldn't normally and kind of uh, feeling like uh, the world is strangely smaller and that we can reach out and say hey I like you I'd like to you know have a chat <laughs> but I've really really enjoyed getting to know you and I uh, absolutely encourage uh, anyone who hasn't discovered your Instagram and your blog and your books um, because your work is really really uniquely wonderful the kind of work that you're doing is really meaningful authentic and delicious mm -hmm.